As tensions simmered down between the U.S. and Iran, for many people, it felt like a step back from the edge. No war with Iran. Back to normal life. In Iran, though, normal is a little bit different because it still feels like a war. We are announcing additional sanctions against the Iranian regime as a result of the attack on U.S. and allied troops. Our sanctions will continue until the regime stops its terrorist activity and commits to never having nuclear weapons. The U.S. Secretary of Treasury did announce 17 new sanctions. They target Iran, steel, and iron industries. Iranians say from food to clothes to rent, sanctions have made everything more expensive. Since the U.S. withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal in 2018, increased U.S. sanctions have cut off Iran from huge parts of the world economy. But the rest of the world is isolated, too, from what Iranians are experiencing. I think people are really seeing that now. And I say that because I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking Iran sanctions, but we're not debating whether they work. We're going to our Tehran bureau to talk about what it feels like to be in Iran, where abstract numbers about GDP and inflation come down to how many bills you hold in your hands. But first, a tweet from the U.S. Last night, at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. No, not from him. After the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite military force, being on Twitter was kind of relentless. I saw a lot of World War III memes and a lot of criticism about those World War III memes. But in the middle of all of that, I also saw a tweet about dolls. They all have big, bushy unibras. <laughs> yeah, and um, curly hair, black hair. I, I found this curly black yarn. They have some sort of a head scarf. They all have these beautiful shoes with details. They're happy dolls. They all look different, but they all look happy. <laughs> Lily Gazian is an artist and a wedding planner in California. She's a U.S. citizen. So I remember growing up, my mom talking about a doll she had when she was a child and her grandma made it out of, you know, scraps of leftover fabrics. And uh, she and her cousins would take turn to play with it and how that doll was dear to her. And... A couple of Halloweens ago, I was in a Goodwill and I saw this beautiful, beautiful clothing with lots of paisley, lots of uh, embroidery. And the idea came to me to, you know, make some uh, dolls and try to use these fabrics to dress them up as, you know, Iranians, ladies from different parts of Iran. So Lily's made these dolls and she decides to post them online to sell. She's got an online shop on a website called Etsy. And I got an email back from Etsy uh, letting me know that I cannot use their platform to sell my dolls. Even though clearly I explained in their description box that I made these dolls and the address I had was in U.S. 
She and Etsy went back and forth about whether the fabric she used came from Iran. She was like, no, no, they just look like authentic Iranian fabrics. But Etsy doesn't take chances when it comes to U.S. sanctions. I'm in here in USA, I'm a U.S. citizen, and these dolls created to resemble the old vintage Persian dolls. To that, they again came back with the same answer that the decision is final and they're not going to correspond with me anymore and they are not going to let me use their platform to sell my dolls. And that's where the tweet came in. It was from Lily's daughter, Yasmin. She saw how upset I am, how disappointed I am. So she used the Twitter and um, the response we got from Twitter was amazing. People shared my pain and I felt like I'm not alone. People see that this is wrong. As a person who have relatives back home, it definitely has more effects than just the dolls, uh, socially, economically, emotionally. Sending items back home to even my mom uh, not being able to get her high blood pressure medicine. Because after the sanctions, the medication she used are not no longer available. So she has to use alternative medications and those simply do not work. They're not as well as the other ones that are affected by sanctions. Pretty much every Iranian knows a story like Lili's. And those happen whether Iran's in the headlines or not. Outside, we hear stories about small things. Many companies over-comply with U.S. sanctions, trying to avoid anything to do with Iran, even the word Iran. So people find their accounts getting blocked using an app to pay a friend for Persian food or for donating to a campaign for disaster relief in Iran. Many Iranian-Americans have complained of bank accounts being shut down. And again, these smaller things are outside of Iran. Inside... The picture just gets bigger. There's a list of things, uh, basically, that you cannot find or you can't get in Iran anymore. Dorsa Jabari covers Iran for Al Jazeera, out of Tehran. I would start with saying you cannot find Western brands, such as Nike or Adidas. You can't find a lot of medication that you used to in Iran. You cannot have access to any of our international banking. You cannot use any credit cards, ATM cards from any other country in Iran. Dorsa has reported on Iran since 2011. But she was born there. She grew up there. And then she moved back as an adult. It was a learning curve, I would say. But it was nice to kind of reconnect with my roots. My family left Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. We left Iran in 1988, just before the war ended. So we immigrated to Canada, and I grew up in Toronto. She left Iran again in 2017 and didn't come back until last summer. She wasn't gone that long, just two years. But a lot happened while she was away. And she saw it pretty much from the moment she stepped off the plane at the currency exchange. I think the first thing I noticed was at the airport, because 
the banking sector in Iran has been cut off from the international world for many, many years. Uh, so you bring in U.S. dollars and you exchange it for the local currency. So usually at the airport to pay for the taxi, I exchange 100 U.S. dollars just so I have some cash. And I was given this huge stack of money and I thought, what is happening? I mean, I knew the dollar rate had gone up, but the last time I was in Iran and I was exchanging money, just to give you an idea, one U.S. dollar was about uh, 4,000 reals. And when I came back this summer, one U.S. dollar was about 12,000 reals. So there was a, a big change. And I thought, okay, I exchanged this $100. This money will last me for like three weeks. And, uh, you know, I will tell you, within three, four days, the money was gone. I, between cab fares and groceries, uh, it goes very quickly. And that was the first thing I think I really noticed. The price of everything across the board over the past two years, I would say, has gone up three times. People's salaries are, you know, they've stayed the same, but the price of everything has tripled. You can't buy a kilo of meat for, I don't know, it used to be 60,000 reals. It is now close to 200,000. Crime has gone up drastically. Uh, and really, I, I don't blame people because people, they have to feed their family somehow, you know? Uh, if somebody has four kids and they can't afford to feed them, they become desperate. A common saying in Iran is that the price of the real always gets worse, never better. The experts say years of economic uncertainty have created such a negative business atmosphere that no one seems to know how to turn things around. So what does that have to do with sanctions? Well, sanctions is a really broad term. Among other things, it covers travel bans, blocking financial transactions, freezing government assets, and restricting trade. The U.S. and Iran haven't had strong economic ties for decades. Don't forget, Iran has been sanctioned by multiple U.S. administrations. But for Iran, the dollar's role in the world economy is a tie that binds. The value of Iran's currency plummeted as the U.S. pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Iran's economic problems also have internal causes, of course, but the timing was linked to that moment. So when the U.S. says Iran can't use dollars or sanctions its central bank, it cuts Iran out of the global financial system. If the U.S. says that anyone else who trades with Iran will be punished, well... Here's U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in 2018. If a company evades our sanctions regime and secretly continues sanctionable commerce in the Islamic Republic, the United States will levy severe, swift penalties on it, including potential sanctions. I promise you that doing business with Iran in defiance of our sanctions will ultimately be a much more painful business decision than being connected to Iran entirely. That's what takes these sanctions so much further. But it's also the sheer number of sanctions, and that's what Dorsa told us. Since the United States withdrew from the nuclear deal in May of 2018, they started to impose a series of sanctions on Iran in various different sects. And that was started with Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, then it was Iran's sell of oil. So anybody purchasing Iranian oil would be sanctioned. And there was eight waivers extended to specific countries that were heavily reliant on purchasing Iranian oil. Then it was a number of textile companies. And the American excuse for these, each of these sanctions every time was that they were somehow linked to the regime, as they call it. And it's been like a, a 
domino effect of sanctions to the point where even the supreme leader and the foreign minister are under U.S. sanctions. There's a joke now, every time they hear new U.S. sanctions, people are like, really, what is left for the U.S. government to sanction? It's like, are they going to sanction me or are they going to sanction you? They think it's going to be ordinary Iranians now, one by one, that are going to be sanctioned. We put together a campaign of diplomatic isolation, economic pressure, and military deterrence. The goal is twofold. First, we want to deprive the regime of resources, resources it needs to perpetrate its malign activity around the world. And second, we just want Iran to behave like a normal nation. Just be like Norway. Right. The U.S. says this quote-unquote maximum pressure campaign will limit Iran's influence. And the goal is to eventually get Iran back to the negotiating table to renegotiate the nuclear deal that the U.S. withdrew from. But even under maximum pressure, people still need to get things from the outside world, which is another reason why prices are so high. Things are coming in under the table because of the sanctions that is put on its banking sector. This has caused them a, a huge issue for Iranians. And a lot of them now rely on people that travel in and out of the country for them to bring in medicine. I, for example, have many relatives who, the only thing they ask for is medication. Whatever I can get without a prescription, they send me pictures of what they need. And a lot of people are diabetic in Iran. It's a huge problem. So diabetic medication, heart medication, these kinds of things are very, very common. Also, you used to be able to find German, Canadian, French brands of pills. Since these new sanctions, it's been slowly, there's less and less you can find. And then even if you can find them, they're three times the price. You know, it's interesting because in the U.S., people who support sanctions say that there are exceptions for humanitarian aid, for medicine, There are certain transactions that they can continue to do, whether they're humanitarian transactions or specific trade in the restricted accounts. This is not about hurting the people of Iran, but we will not let money be diverted to humanitarian purposes and then put for terrorist activities. So how does that actually translate to average Iranians? Even the Red Crescent or people that volunteer to help those that are in need, let's say, in the earthquake victims, these kinds of things are dealt with through the Revolutionary Guards. And the whole entity is under U.S. sanctions. So any kind of a aid that would come to this country can't get to them. Or if they send it to the Red Crescent, because of all the sanctions on the banking sector, it would take so long for them to get that money that it would just be pointless by the time they get it, or they just never get it. If the Americans say they have, they've made exceptions, we haven't seen them in the country. So in the U.S., there's this feeling of, oh, World War III was averted and Iran was in the headlines, but now less so. Nothing like it was before a few weeks ago. And most people feel like they can go back to living their normal lives. But in Iran, what is that situation like? What is normal life like? Normal life is waiting for Donald Trump to do something (laughs) against Iran. This is what it feels like right now. Uh, since the assassination of the head of Iran's Quds forces, Qasem Soleimani. You know, I'm not saying everybody loved him. He was something, I think it's very hard to explain to the outside world what he meant to people inside Iran. He was a name that's synonymous with 
the national identity of this country and the national pride. And I think uh, Iranians are very well aware that um, his assassination is now going to change the history of this country. There will be a period before he was assassinated and the period after. It's such a decisive thing in Iran's history now that there is no going back. So the sense now is this is just the beginning. So where is it headed? In the short term, Dorsa says that a big part of the strategy, isolating Iran, restricting its economic growth, is aimed at getting Iran to negotiate a new deal on its nuclear program. And she thinks it's not going to work. You can't force Iranians to renegotiate something. You have to remember, these people lived through a devastating eight-year war where everything was hard to find. The war that's shaken the whole Gulf region and the wider world beyond. Iraq and Iran could end up economically crippled. An estimated 500,000 soldiers from both sides were killed, in addition to hundreds of thousands of civilian deaths. I remember as a child, everything was rationed. So you would purchase whatever you could, as much as you could, whenever you could. And that's the mentality that Iranians have still to this day. They live through the most horrible things during the war. So for them, these sanctions, they're isolating Iran more and more, but they've lived through worse and they can live through this. So they're, they're saying, well, we'll tough it out until there's another, the next election in the US and see what happens. But this idea that they will crumble and come back and renegotiate, it's just not something that will ever happen in their minds here. This is what I think a lot of people are at now. They don't, they don't understand how the United States doesn't get how Iran works. I think the image people have of this country uh, is that it's all these, you know, revolutionary guard type of people. And the ordinary Iranians just want the most basic things. They're not, uh, they don't have these grand demands of what they want out of life. They just want to be able to feed their families, have their kids go get an education and find work, you know? It's like anywhere else in the world, I would say. Uh, maybe their pride is what prevents them sometimes from achieving what they want, but other than that, I think it's like anywhere else I've been to in this region and in the world. I would just wish they would consider people when they're making decisions. That's Lili, the doll maker we talked to. I asked her what she would say if she had the ear of her president in the U.S. or her relative's president in Iran. Uh, politics does not work if you don't do it for the good of people. And it seems like the sanctions is no way, in no way, have the interests of ordinary people like me, my mom, my neighbors. American neighbors, Iranian neighbors, it has no, it does not have them in mind. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke, Wadina Kispe, Amy Walters, Nate Alvarez, Priyanka Tilbe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Wednesday.